This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Hello and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. In the mix tonight, well, we're going to combine the best of romance, nostalgia and reflection with a curious bite of the sublime. Veteran BBC Radio 4 broadcaster Malvin Bragg talks life, love and learning to let go. We can never let go of memory, ever. I mean, memory is our ball and chain, but it's also our liberation. Memory is the only infinite thing we've got. It goes as far back as we can go and we can take it so far back that it's almost beyond our reckoning. Memory and imagination are the two great factors in life. The interesting thing now is that we know that memory isn't a constant. Memory isn't a sort of still reservoir. It's several running streams which are changing direction all the time. I take a jolly out to lovely sea breeze Dunleary and preview the upcoming Mountains to the Sea Books Festival. And for trills, I take on the man in the mountain as we review the best of sports writing on the iconic Tour de France with Irish independent columnist and self-confessed cycling fanatic Joe O'Shea. The tour very quickly became a central part of the French summer but also of the French psyche. It came to represent French nationalism. It was exploited for French nationalism. At one stage, they ran national teams, and the French public took to the tour in a way that very few sporting events have actually seen. And to end the show tonight, we visit Ireland's oldest bookstore, Hodges and Figgis, on Dublin's Dawson Street, and find out do we really judge a book by its cover. But first, For over 40 years, Sir Melvin Bragg has delighted generations of fans and audiences with his unique, smart and stylish broadcasting. He's sharp, clever, funny. The list goes on and on. And if that wasn't enough, this talented gent has produced over 30 fiction and non-fiction books. Well, it was one hell of a treat to meet up with one of my literary and broadcast heroes, Sir Melvin Bragg, at the West Cork Literary Festival. I got decked out in my best dress, jewels and hat, and marched excitedly into the interview room. Melvin was reading from his latest book, Grace and Mary. Mary now lived mostly in the constant present. John would see his mother more frequently, save exceptionally, There'd been no past. There was no future. There was no point in referring to the last time I was here or saying next week we'll go out if the weather holds up. Her past appeared to be an ocean of unknowing. Only now and then, prompted by John or by an unexpected breath of recognition, would cargo or wreckage from the past be washed onto the shore of the present. Her future was expressed in exclamations. That would be lovely. I'd like that. That had no content. There were the occasions of recall, so rare, her last arias, John thought, her songs of remembrance. He had finally come to the conclusion that she would never again be as she had been before. It was an obvious conclusion, but it took him some time to accept it. He'd known it for at least a year, but there were different levels of knowing. It was only now that the intellectual sense of knowing had turned into a visceral sense. Previously, he knew it as an observable phenomenon, but also as a problem that might be solved or alleviated by new medicines, by time, by nursing, by his own amateur attempts to repair the ruin. 
Now he knew, as they used to say, in his bones, that she was relentlessly fading away from what she had been. The most he could hope for her was a steady contentment as he watched her being transformed like a butterfly, slowly going back into its chrysalis. The present was puzzling. One persistent mantra was that we only live in the present. John thought that memory and planning challenged that mantra, but here was a blunt truth of it. You were alive because of a breath you were taking now. However busy with the filing of recollections and the construction of future possibilities, that unique couple of handfuls of galactically sensitive stuff inside the eggshell skull was operating now. It only needed a now event, a heart attack, a bus, a bullet, and it would be all over. Back to particles. Back into the cycles of billions of years to be part of the next act in the drama. But even then, John thought, it would still be now. Even if the particles didn't realise that, though who knew what they thought? The present was forever there, and its primacy was indisputable. However hedged in and jostled by what was going on and what was to come, it was the quick of life. Yet when faced with this present, with his mother, John often found it hard to bear. He felt an intensity, but there was also an inexcusable boredom. Maybe the present was just too hard. Maybe he couldn't face it. It was the clearest and most brutal reminder of death. Every breath you took was one less. Maybe the present was sliced up so minutely that only those who suffered from an affliction had the stamina to keep in it. Or perhaps it didn't exist. When you thought of a word, it was the future. When you spoke it, it was the past. Melvin Bragg, welcome to Talking Books. It's a hugely emotive piece of writing, Grace and Mary. It's in parts very raw, it's very touching, but I imagine it was also very real for you to write. How much is fact and how much is fiction? And how much of Melvin do we see in the characters? Well, I think like every novel I've ever written and like every novel most novelists write, I'm in all the characters. This has one basis in facts in my life, which was my mother spent the last five years with Alzheimer's and I spent those years going up and down the country from London to the west coast of Cumbria to her hospital and sitting with her and talking to her and trying to bring her back to herself through songs that we sang together, through showing her photographs of the old times, through talk and trying to make one personality of the many personalities that she'd turn into with Alzheimer's. Sometimes she was a person I didn't recognise. Sometimes she was a person she wouldn't have recognised. So that was based on what I saw. But you had to fictionalise it. I saw her over five years, and the part that she occupies in this book is about half the book, about 30,000 words. And you make it up. It's a very funny thing about fiction. If I'd written that as fact, I couldn't have written it. I would try to remember it accurately, and that would get in the way. I wanted to dream about it and reimagine it. The other part is totally fabricated. The other fact is about her mother and I knew two or three little facts about her. Her mother died when she was born and she and her three siblings went to a little farm near the small town in which I was brought up and were brought up there and I knew that she had an illegitimate child when she was about 19 in 1917. That was my mother and I knew that as a result of that she'd left the town, probably been forced to leave the town. It was a tight little religious town in the northwest of England in that time in the Second World War. And I met her in smudges of time, two or three times, but I didn't know her. And my mother never told me about her until I was about 18 or 19. And then abruptly, knowing that I was a man by then and it wouldn't harm me, she'd protected me from that for many years. But I wanted to dream her up. She Now this is a strange thing to say really because it's not to do with spookiness or anything, but she appeared in my life. I saw this woman. First time it's ever happened to me. I saw her wandering around the lanes near a little cottage I've got up in Cumberland I've had for 45 years or something. And I know she was. She wasn't threatening. She was just a woman, ordinary working class woman of a certain generation, hair parted in the middle. And then I suddenly realised that was my grandmother. And I wanted to write about her. 
So that's how I started writing fiction again after a lapse of a few years. And then I wanted to bring my mother and her into the same book. And I wanted to bring me into the same book so the three of us were together, which we never were. I mean, if two or three times she came to see me, my grandmother, I sort of remember. Mind you, misremembering is part of a novelist's trade, but still, I do remember for a very mundane reason that she would leave me a brown envelope with a 10-shilling note in it, which in the 1940s and 50s was a fortune. It was winning the pools. I remember that. I'm a sad thing to say, but I remember her enough. But she would be coming to the parlour, which was tiny, and be sat down by my mother, who would then leave. And I'd be brought in, scrubbed and tidied up, and I'd sit down, and I presume we talked, but I was never told who she was, ever. Never told what her name was. And so I felt great sorrow that I hadn't known her. I would guess she was sorry she hadn't known me, because I was her grandson. And um, I wanted to bring these two women together. Now, I've spoken in rather melancholy terms about this, but it isn't melancholy the way I think of them. These two women were fiercely strong. They led their lives. They had all the richness of great ordinary people who lead spectacular lives, which have been untabulated for centuries. And now, through certain writers, me included, they're being put where they should be, which is at the centre of literature, at the centre of art. They led, I think, truly great lives. So these women made the best of what they had, but they made a great thing of what they had, and they didn't moan, and they got on with it. So there's that strand going through as well, but there were difficulties. There were difficulties of rupture, there were difficulties of illegitimacy. A much stronger word was used in those days. You weren't illegitimate, you were, and so it went on, very hurtful. Hurtful for life for some people. So it was about these two women, and then I tried to weave around it certain thoughts, and, uh, and there you are. And both Grace and Mary have tremendous grit and great courage, but they're haunted by the heavy burdens of history. Do you think we can let go of the past and can we let go of memory? We can never let go of memory, ever. I mean, memory is our ball and chain, but it's also our liberation. Memory is the only infinite thing we've got. It goes as far back as we can go and we can take it so far back that it's almost beyond our reckoning. Memory and imagination are the two great factors in life. So that is a part of thinking about these women and thinking about people that fascinates me because I think there's so much of it there. And I I mean, we're made by our memories, but the interesting thing now is that we know that memory isn't a constant. Memory isn't a sort of still reservoir. It's several running streams which are changing direction all the time, and it changes itself as it represents itself when we're faced with different problems. Yes, they were burdened, but we're all burdened. You can turn your burden into joy, Certainly my mother did, uh, in her quiet way. I mean, she was quiet, but she was a fascinated woman. She still fascinates me. She was quiet in her ways, but she was very, very strong, and very strong in that small town where everybody would know she was illegitimate. But if anybody said a word, they just backed off. And yet she was sweet, she had a lovely voice, she sang, she was quiet, she went to dances, she went to socials, all that sort of stuff, and took me to them as well. And Grace I made up, of course. Well, we'll see. Maybe in the long run somebody will say, you were right about Grace. And final question, Mavin. I was surprised by all the beautiful poetry in the book and the musical references, and it gave me a new insight to you as a, I suppose, cultural authority in British life. Tell me, how difficult was that, revealing that side of yourself? And what have you learned from writing Grace and Mary? Well, what I've learned from writing Grace and Mary, it's a very good question, is that I can be more liberated than I used to be. I'm a very careful writer. And if I set out to do a historical novel like Credo, I watch the boundaries that historical form sets. And I just feel more liberated having written about this. I don't think it was 
cathartic. I don't want any closure. I don't want closure about my mother or my grandmother. I want them to keep living in my head. But I, I just felt easier. I thought I'm onto something. I'm there now, so I can drift away. I can have reflections on what people turn into and where they go. And I felt liberated by that. And so I brought in a great deal more than I usually do. I mean, I brought in music. There were songs. There were, you know, Daisy, Daisy, Give Me Your Answer To Do. A good song, some of my Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. And William Butler Yeats. That's right. I brought in Yeats, yes. The man who was a great lover of Yeats, as I am, and he was, and that comes into the book and is part of the development of grace. Melvin Bragg, thank you so much for coming on Talking Books. Thank you very much for asking. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. If you'd like more information on what you've heard tonight, well, why don't you visit our webpage www.newstalk.ie forward slash talking books. Now, are you like most of the population and sweep past the sports section of your local bookstore, making huge generalisations on what sports books are all about and why they don't appeal to your highly sophisticated tastes? Well, you may be pleasantly surprised to find out that there's more to sports books than meets the eye and realise that some of the best of sports writing has poetry, philosophy, breathtaking romance, not to mention riveting human psychology. Well, the Tour de France is one of the world's greatest sporting spectacles. It's loaded with Shakespearean drama, high-octane action and tremendous style. I caught up with Joe O'Shea, columnist with the Irish Independent, and we leafed through some of the best sporting books of the last few years. We first started talking about poetry in motion and what good sports writing is all about. Sports books definitely can be poetic. They can have a lot of philosophy, a lot of romance in them. The problem with sports books is they tend to get ghettoized. Even in the bookstore, you'll see there'll be a big shelf in the corner, you know, sports biographies. And maybe 70% of people who go into the bookstore would never dream of even browsing in that shelf because they're not into sports. But at their very best, and I think some of the books we're going to talk about today are the very best, 
they really bring out a lot about human nature, about struggling, about one man, an individual, against impossible demands in some cases. And the individual sports in particular, boxing and cycling, I would say, they tend to attract thinkers. You know, they tend to attract guys who have mental toughness, but also a philosophical take on life because it's different to a team sport where you have, if you play in a football team, you've 10 other guys who can carry the slack or take up the slack if you're having a bad day. If you're a cyclist, if you're a boxer, if you have a bad day, you have a really bad day. And a lot of these elite sports people, which we're going to discuss here now with with a few of the books that you've selected, are also loners as well. Yeah, certain sports tend to attract the kind of the loner type, you know, the guy who wants to do it by himself. And cycling in particular, up until fairly recently, was a sport for loners, even though it is a team sport, even within the teams, the individual cyclists are often by themselves. And at the very toughest, especially in the Tour de France, it's man against the mountain. It's also man against the clock. One of the disciplines is the individual time trial, which is contra la mantra, against the clock. And you're literally racing a clock and it it comes down to seconds. So it very much depends on the mental toughness of the sportsmen involved. Now, given the spirit of the summer and looking at how the Tour de France has captured the imagination of most people, it's in its 100th year this year. So what you've done is you've selected three different books for listeners. And how about we start off with Laurent Fignon's We Were Young and Carefree? I think this is probably one of the greatest sports books that has ever been written. But again, it might have passed by a lot of Irish people because Laurent Fignon would not be that well known. His golden days are now pretty much in the past. Laurent Fignon was the last great romantic cyclist, really. He was the last great French cyclist, the last Frenchman to win a Tour de France. In the 80s, he won twice. And he was a fascinating character because he does not look like anybody's idea of a professional sportsman. He was tall, gangly. He was blonde. He had a blonde ponytail. He was thinning on top. He wore these gold-rimmed John Lennon glasses. He looked like a provincial geography teacher more than a professional cyclist. And he was a cantankerous guy, he was a philosophical guy, he was a romantic. He poured everything into the sport and he poured everything into his biography. We were young and carefree. You know, it doesn't strike you as a typical title for a sports book, you know. But it's an amazing, an amazing book. It's just full of so much personal reflections on a life, a tough life, but a life that was very well lived. It's very French. I mean, only Fignon could get away with a line like, Cycling is a capricious mistress, so close to you and sometimes so distant. Now, from anybody else, that might sound a bit pretentious, but from a French sportsman, we remember Eric Cantona with, you know, when the seagulls follow the trawler, the sardines will be thrown in. It kind of rings true, and especially from Fignon, and the whole tone of the book is like that. It's almost like he's not even interested in the great victories that he had, and he had great victories. What he is interested in are the betrayals, are the times he was let down by people, the times that people unexpectedly helped him out, the great cyclists that he would have ridden with and how he saw them, especially when they were coming to the end of their careers, being deserted by the sponsors, by the money men. They were chucked out the back, no longer any use for anybody. And he knew through his career that that was going to happen to him someday. So he very much looks at his sport as, again, as a personal struggle as a way for a young man from the outskirts of Paris, from a poor background, to achieve fame, riches, but also personal fulfilment. And it's very much a meditation on life because what we get are huge highs and then tremendous lows. And how how Laurent Fignon writes about the Tour de France 
when he lost by eight seconds. It's powerful stuff. Like how he writes about failure, about coping with failure and learning to kind of live with that, you know, trying to let go of the dreams of the past. Like it's deeply philosophical. It's wonderful poetry. And, you know, it isn't what you would expect from a sports book. It's fantastic. He lost on the very last day. Now, you've got to remember Tour de France is three weeks, thousands of kilometres over Alpine passes. And on the final day of that tour, when he lost to Greg LeMond, he was charging down the Champs-Élysées against the clock. It was an individual time trial. And the whole of France was watching. This was an existential crisis for France. When this happened, because he was their man, it's their tour. And when he lost by eight seconds and they saw him pounding down the Champs-Élysées, he was wounded, he was giving it everything, he was falling off the bike. The French commentator was counting down. One second, two seconds, three seconds. That's it, he's lost. Vignon came across the line, collapsed. And he writes about that in the most gut-wrenching way possible. He talks about he couldn't talk to anybody. He couldn't believe he lost for hours afterwards. People kept telling him, you lost by eight seconds. And he was saying, how is this possible? The way he writes about that just brings home what an individual sport is at the very top, the very elite, where the margins of success and failure are so, so thin. And as he says himself, people would, for years afterwards would come up to him and say, oh, you're Laurent Fignon, you're the guy who lost the Tour de France by eight seconds. And he would say, no, I'm the guy who won the Tour de France twice. What we see in Laurent Fignon's We Were Young and Carefree is not just, you know, huge grit and resolve, massive competitive drive, but we also see a beautiful amount of compassion. Because when he talks about Greg LeMond, not only does he reference the fact that, you know, he was very sick on the last day of the time trial, but Greg LeMond had a very trendy, a very sophisticated new bike, which had all sorts of aids, which allowed him to actually go that extra mile, so to speak, to achieve the impossible. And how he writes about that is so interesting because he generally has a kind of a compassion and he is a bigger guy than you actually would think of any sportsman. It's funny because he could have blamed the bike, which probably was against the rules. You know, this newfangled bike that Greg LeMond. And again, it's interesting that Fignon is the last of the Romantic Age before science and technology took over, before doping took over professional cycling. Greg LeMond was sort of the harbinger of the new age, even though he never tested positive himself. But it was Fignon looking over his shoulder, seeing Americans coming, seeing the British who would come to dominate professional cycling as they do at the moment with Team Sky. He could have used that bike as an excuse. And in some ways, he almost, he goes up to the edge of saying, I lost because of Greg LeMond's bike. But then he realizes there is no point in blaming that, that the failure was within him and not within the scientists who had helped Greg LeMond. So he's incredibly honest. You know, he doesn't say, I'm the bigger man here. You know, I'm not going to blame the bike. He says, yes, I want to blame the bike. I should blame the bike. I'd be justified in blaming the bike, but I have to blame myself. And how he blames himself is exquisitely French and is hugely compelling. And I imagine there's lots of women listening who wouldn't think that a cycling book is for them. But Laurence Fignon's We Were Young and Carefree is better than any of the best political memoirs that I've read or even some of the best romantic fiction. It is, again, sport at this level and individual sports. It's almost a romance. You know, he fell in love with the sport when he was a child. He saw it as a way to get out. He talks about his father, who was a very tough working class man who wanted his son to be an engineer, not a professional cyclist. He fell in love with the sport and the sport treated him very badly in some respects, but also brought him huge riches, huge fame and gave him a life that he could never have hoped for under normal circumstances. And he writes about that in a very philosophical and romantic way. And there is the romance comes true. It is very French, as I keep saying, but it is it strikes true. It's sincere and it's honest and it's just a beautiful piece of writing. So let's move from Vive la France 
to a very gritty read from Ireland's best-known sports journalist, Paul Kimmich. Can we talk a little bit about rough ride behind the wheels with a pro cyclist? This was written in 1990. Paul Kimmich actually left the sport of cycling to write this book. And it was a seismic event at the time for pro cycling and also for sports writing. For the first time ever, it really exposed the darker side of professional cycling. And it was written by a guy who was there, who rode in the Tour de France, who was a professional cyclist, who did cycle at the very, very top level. Now, he may not have been an elite cyclist himself. There are very few. The sport tends to depend on what they call domestiques, the water carriers, you know, the guys who look after the real stars. But Kimmage wrote with brutal honesty about what was going on in the sport that he loved. It's a love story that went disastrously wrong. Kimmage loved the sport, I mean, with a passion, loved it from his childhood. He worked his ass off, basically, to get to the very top of the sport. And when he got there, he found that it was an empty vessel. And what we get here is a broken heart. And reading it, you know, it's compelling stuff, but it's really, really angry. This is a man whose heart is broken. He's been disappointed. He's been betrayed. He's been let down. Reading Rough Ride, you can't but be affected by the man's massive disappointment. It's all over the page. Every word spanks of betrayal, loss, disappointment, anger. It's a superb read, but again, it's a very angry read. It is angry, and what comes across a lot is Kimmage is an honest man, and he found himself in a very dishonest place. And he thought that if he went to the people in charge, if he pointed this out to people and said, look what's going on with this sport, it's being destroyed, he thought that people would thank him for doing so. He thought that people would say, finally, an honest man, you know, we will listen to you. Not only did they not want to listen to him, they wanted to silence him. So you have the first betrayal of the actual sport. The second betrayal comes with the administrators and the people running it who told him to shut up, basically. They did not want him talking about this. So he feels doubly betrayed and he is very, very angry. Kimmage turned this anger into a great career. And he recently, of course, was one of the few journalists long-standing would not believe the Lance Armstrong story. And again, you know, in a repeat of what happened to him in his own career, he was told, shut up, basically. He was told, nobody wants to know this. Lance Armstrong is a hero. Lance Armstrong has survived cancer. And you are going around trying to destroy this great athlete's name. In Rough Ride, it was written in 1990. Now, a new edition came out two years ago with a new foreword. And how Kimmage went back on the tour this year for the first time since Rough Ride. And actually, as covering it as a journalist, is making a documentary about it for Irish TV. And again, the fire that comes across in Rough Ride has not dimmed in him at all. If anything, it's actually increased. But the interesting thing about these two books now, Lawrence Vignon's We Were Young and Carefree and Paul Kimmage's Rough Ride, the writing style is so incredibly different because one, we have pure poetry, philosophy, drama, as well as kind of the big blue sky thinking stuff. And then with Paul Kimmage, it's written in a pure journalistic style and he doesn't hold back, not one bit. You know, he may not have been destined to be the greatest cyclist of all time, but I think he really is a natural born journalist. It doesn't hold back at all to the point where people did not talk to him and still won't talk to him two decades on. You know, I mean, they won't talk to the guy because, again, he said the unsayable. He broke the silence around what was going on. He wrote this in 1990. He foreshadowed an awful decade in professional cycling and professional sports of rampant doping. That was allowed to happen because the administrators, the money men, the fans didn't want to hear about doping. They did not want to know about this. He was one of the few guys who stood up and actually talked about it. 
Now, the last one you've picked for us, Joe, is A Race for Mad Men by Chris Sidwell, who is a very well-respected British journalist and photographer, and he knows a lot about cycling. But one of the curious things about this book is that while you get the kind of the highs and lows of the Tour de France over the last 100 years, you also get a real insight into the politics of the cycle, you know, the chauvinism at play, and also the sense of the patriotic in the Tour de France. A Race for Mad Men by Chris Sidwell is basically a history of the Tour de France and it's an overview of the Tour from the very start. And what's very interesting is the reasons why the Tour started. It was to promote a new newspaper. It was to promote tourism in France because France was opening up a new network of roads. So somebody came up with the crazy idea at the time. Why don't we cycle across France for three weeks with 200 guys? People thought this was the craziest idea they'd ever heard in their lives because you got to remember this is before the First World War. What it quickly became, and what the book very well documents and portrays, is how the tour very quickly became a central part of the French summer, but also of the French psyche. How it came to represent French nationalism, how it was exploited for French nationalism. At one stage, they ran national teams, and the French public took to the tour in a way that very few sporting events have actually seen. It's fascinating because of the characters involved as well, from the administration side and also from the cycling side. To give an example, Jacques Anquetil, who is one of the greats of the tour, was a very strange man and had a very strange personal life. He left his first wife for the wife of his doctor. They married and then they had a daughter. But it turned out years later that the daughter was actually born of the daughter of the wife of the doctor, so his stepdaughter, now, which sounds strangely French, maybe it was a very unusual story and became a big scandal when it eventually emerged in France. But Anquetil is still very much admired in France. People kind of forgave all of that. And it was because he had given them so much pleasure as such a great writer on the tour. It also captures the long wait that the French public have had for a new hero. Now, if you think Wimbledon and the final Andy Murray victory and how the British public reacted to that, you've got to see the Tour de France in the same way. They have watched other nations triumph at the Tour for a long, long time. They've also watched Lance Armstrong, who is now uncovered as a doper. They watched him win seven years in a row. They watched French cyclists go backwards down the mountains while these guys were going forwards up the mountains. Now, there were French riders doping as well, but the French have been waiting a long, long time for a national saviour, somebody to come along and win this great sporting event for them again. And Sidwell, I think, has very well documented how central that love and also that waiting, that yearning for a great victory is with the French public and the tour. Well, Joe, there are three terrific books. They're all very, very different. But one thing that does unify them is their passion and is the joy and is the love that surrounds sport. Yeah, if you saw the tour this year, there was a million people on the Alpe d'Huez, you know, a million people lining this huge pass over the Alps. Professional cycling is just one of those sports and maybe has been ignored in Ireland or at least was, you know, for a while. It's just one of those sports that excites incredible passion, incredible writing and incredible stories. So I think even if you're not interested in the sport, these books and especially Laurent Fignon one are a great place to start and introduce yourself to a world that is really, really big basically and out there and every summer and just has so much colour and passion. If you want recommendations, the Eamon Dunphy book Only a Game, a classic and uh, Jim Bolton, Ball Four about American baseball changed the way people wrote about sport in the States in the early 70s. Joe O'Shea, journalist and broadcaster, thanks so much for coming on Talking Books and picking three riveting reads.
Thank you. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Have you ever wondered, is there something more to the cliche, don't judge a book by its cover? Well, I don't know about you, but I certainly have. And sometimes I feel I'm seldom wrong. So with that in mind, I strolled down to Dublin's oldest bookshop, Hodges and Figgis, on Dublin's Dawson Street and met up with somebody who knows a hell of a lot about books, Liam Donnelly, the store's manager. Liam has over 30 years experience in the business and has worked for some of the country's most prestigious players. Book covers are designed, I suppose, to attract us to them. So publishers spend a lot of money on design. They spend a lot of money on thematically designing their books so that books for various different genres all look and feel a certain way and then that way people can make an informed choice about what they want to pick up. And within those informed choices how many books are actually bought as an impulse? That's hard to measure. Often people don't say it's an impulse and they go, well, I really meant to buy that, and they do. But often they come in with the express desire to buy a book, but they know maybe what genre they want to buy it in. So if they go to that genre like crime or cinema or biography, they will find a book, maybe by an author they've never read before, that has attracted them and the cover is the thing that makes them buy it. So we're pretty straightforward as buyers of books. So if you're going for a hardback, obviously you know that you have to spend a lot of money. But your average book is about twelve ninety nine. So in terms of the overall cover and design, what works? And are there maybe differences between what men buy and what women buy? Like obviously a man doesn't want to buy a book with a handbag or possibly a pram on the cover or some pair of heels because there's a suggestion that if he's on the dart or on a train or on a bus on the way home, what's he reading? Book covers are designed thematically. Science fiction covers all have a very similar look and feel. Crime covers very similar look and feel. Chick-lick covers look like chick-lick covers. So, yes, people are able to go immediately to the shelf and go, aha, that's the one I want, but not that one because it looks like a chick-lick book because I'm a man, I don't want it, I want a crime novel. So they pick whatever they want, I suppose, out of that. They see the cover, cover attracts them to it, then they know roughly, I've had something like that before, I'm going to pick it again. And you've picked out a selection of books here now they're just going through and I also did a little walk around and what just jumped out at me for no particular reason. So can you talk me through some of the choices? Let's take a look at the bestsellers. First of all, there's a few ones there that whether you knew anything about the book or not, the cover is immediately very attractive. that's right there are good few covers especially in bestsellers the design is very important and it has to be stand out so that people can pick it up off the shelf or see it immediately examples of that are gone girl by Gillian flynn which is a very spare color with just gone girl in an orange on a black with a tiny image that's in black on the black if you know what i mean it's very hard to see but it's very subtle but it sticks out like a sore thumb and there's a real feeling of mystery about the book there is, yeah. It's a very stark cover, implying a very stark story. I suppose that's the best way to describe it. It is a story told in two parts of a husband and a wife, from the husband's point of view as a murderer and the wife as the victim. And it's very, very stark. And for a guy, for the alpha male out there, he'd have no problem having this on the bus or the train because it has this sufficient amount of black and minimum details. So it would jump out to a man straight away. It's sold for all readers. It's not sold for men or women. It is listed as thriller of the year and everything in orange and bold and it's very striking as a colour so it does give the reader exactly what they're going to get. And I presume that you have literally 10 seconds to create that impact when you design book covers. 
Indeed, yeah. And even in a bookshop, as people are walking by, so the books have to be face out on the shelf. There's no point in having just a spine. And if I just look over at this one here now, Liam, it's Beautiful Runes by Jess Walter. And it's kind of a very retro cover and very much reminds me of America of the 60s. And it is intriguing, although to me, I'd make some immediate cultural assumptions just by looking at the cover. Yeah, it is a retro design. It is part of Penguin house style in some of their genre fiction is very much aimed at a retro look. This is not really a retro book but it is a retro look and it is very attractive as such. So people are picking it up because they see the cover and they go, whoa, that's an interesting book, I'm going to read this. So that can actually deceive the buyer that what they're getting in terms of content because looking at this now, I'd imagine that this is kind of an intriguing story a bit arty-farty and certainly left to centre. It is, actually. (laughs) Perfectly described. It is that, but it's also the sort of sleeper hit of the summer. So it's a book that people have been picking up on and the only reason they've been picking up on it is because of seeing it in bookshops or a word of mouth thing. It hasn't got a great critical mass on radio and television and newspapers. Now the one that really jumped out at me is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Just to describe to listeners, it's a white background with a very short pencil. It's very simple, no flashy flashy. It's, you know, intelligent, smart and sassy, so to speak. Yeah, again, the design of the book reflects the material inside the book. The book is about how we make choices and how we decide, how we decide to make those choices. And the cover sort of reflects that because it has that aura of a sort of a blank page and a pencil mark that you're sort of thinking about something, how we're going to go on and do something like that. So the cover designers have thought long and hard about exactly what the cover is going to convey relative to the content of the book. There certainly is a kind of a lack of emotionality to this cover. It's quite cold, it's quite minimal. And as such, you do think it's kind of an intelligent read. But as a as a woman coming in here now, and maybe if I was in an emotional mood or feeling a bit highly strung, that is not exactly the handbag look that I could be going for. It's not, but this book is sold to both sexes, I suppose. Men and women have been buying this equally. The cover itself has a very sinuous curve in it. The pencil mark is very sinuous and it does give that air of thoughtfulness I suppose is the best way to put it that people are trying to get out of the book and get for their lives because it's a book about how we want to change ourselves and what about the e-readers and so on I love the feel of a book but obviously the typeface the visuals the whole look and feel has to suit technology as well So how has that changed the playing field? The design of the book has become better over recent years to complement or actually compete with, in some ways, the e-readers. Because with an e-reader, you're getting text. With a book, you're getting a cover and text. So you're getting an object. And the object is becoming slightly more beautiful with some of the publishers. And a lot of publishers are waking up to the fact that, hey, physical books need to be really nice objects now, as well as the book we wanted to read. And, you know, size matters enormously. I'm looking at Casanova's Return to Venice. It's by Push can press and you know I cycle everywhere on my bike having a big hardback is a real pain in the neck for me having a nice little nifty book like this fits in my handbag gets in the front carrier I don't have to think book sizes have been traditionally in sort of a b c format publishers have cottoned on I suppose to the fact that as you're saying people need to stuff something in a handbag or put it in their pocket or walk around the place with it and something small is easy to carry it's the best way to put it and the boutique publishers the small publishers like Pushkin have 
created little sizes that people can walk around with and carry around with them and also very very nicely designed simple things so essentially it's all about marketing tricks here and it can all be a bit brain dead in a sense that i go into a bookshop and whether i think i have control over what i'm buying or not or whether the kind of the content i think i'm going in for or not it's like going into a supermarket and smelling the pastries in essence you're being drawn to certain areas of the bookshop so there's a game going on no matter what bookshop you go into and it's a very intelligent smart sales game. Publishers spend a lot of money on design of books because they want their books to sell and each cover tells a story and each story I suppose needs to be bought and read so that's the easiest thing for us to do is to display the covers so that people can see them. Book covers are forever evolving and what is interesting about book covers in the last while is that the technology I suppose the use of Photoshop and how people are using the technology and how printing technology is improving is giving a greater variety to the book cover. So at the end of the day we all really judge the book by the cover. We sure do. Each cover attracts us to a book and that's what makes us buy it. Now for an interesting diversion and a lovely little bit of a sea breeze. Ireland's most prestigious books festival, the Mountains to Sea Books Festival, kicks off next weekend in lovely Dunleary in South County Dublin. And for book lovers of all shapes and sizes, they have ticked all the boxes, with contributions from Anne Enright, Ivan Bolan, Seamus Heaney, Michael Harding, to name but a few. Sarah Webb is one of Ireland's most successful and prolific authors and is this year's Children's and Families Curator of the Mountains to the Sea Books Festival. Sarah talked me through some of the highlights of this year's programme and selected some really interesting children's workshops and writing events. We have different events for all age groups. We've catered for parents, toddlers and babies with a picture book picnic right up to older teenagers with something like Patrick Ness's event with the teen curators. We also have done school events and we also have workshops and art workshops and writing workshops for children. We really kind of have catered for the whole spectrum. It's the largest children's programme in a festival in Ireland and from the very beginning Mountains to Sea have always been really devoted to bringing books and writers to children. Dunleary Rathdown as a county council and as a library authority are just very, very clued in and aware of children reading, teenagers reading, which is brilliant. So they're a great organisation to work with. Can you talk me through some of the big kind of names? I know there's big names like Charlie Hickson and uh, Liz Pichon. Is there anyone else we need to know about? Derek Landy is one of Ireland's biggest writers. He's also become really, really popular internationally and he'll be speaking on the Wednesday afternoon. So children and parents can come and hear him after school. He's going to be fantastic. He's very, very funny. And who else do we have? We have Chris Judge, who is a picture book artist and a great storyteller. He has an amazing character called The Beast. And he's going to be talking about his beast at the picture book picnic. That's on Saturday for families. And then one of my favourite events, which my co-curator Tom came up with, is the Roald Dahl Factor, which is like the X Factor, but for Dahl fans. So we have different actors and writers act out their favourite Dahl extract. And then we have a team of kid judges and they're going to hold up scores and judge the different pieces. I'm a huge Dahl fan, so I'm really looking forward to that. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the new voices and great adaptions? That looks uh, very <laughs> intriguing. Every year we try and do a couple of events for adults who are interested in children's books. And the great adaptations is just a play on the word apps because, as I'm sure you know, a lot of children's books are now being made into apps, including Chris Judge's Lonely Beast app, which is called The Beast Alphabet, which is ABCs on an app. So that is on the Saturday at three o'clock and that is for adults. And they're going to tease out some of the ideas beyond the book. You know, you have your book. What can you do with a book? You know, websites, apps, games, everything that kind of go around a book. After that, on Saturday at half four, we have New Voices, which is all about new authors, developing a new author, writing a book, marketing a new author, promoting a new author. And we have a fantastic agent coming over from the UK called Caroline Walsh. And she represents Jacqueline Wilson, who's one of the world's most successful writers for girls mainly, but boys reader too. She's going to talk about agenting a writer and what she's looking for in a new children's writer. So I think anyone who's interested in writing for children, I think that'll be a really, really good event. Just in the broader schedule, there's lots of big names like Anne N. Wright, Michael mm-hmm. Harding, Margaret yeah. Atwood. You've got Seamus Heaney. You've got Ivan Boland. There's loads of interesting poets, writers mm-hmm. and general thinkers. Can you talk me through some of the highlights? Well, the one I'm really looking forward to is Margaret Atwood. Unfortunately, I know the tickets are sold out, but she, I think, is just extraordinary. And she's on the Tuesday, the 3rd of September. So she's the kind of opening speaker. Yvonne Boland is speaking on the Friday evening at half six. That's the 6th of September. I'm just, I'm a big fan of her poetry. As a mum, you know, her poems about nighttime feeds and things. They meant a lot to me. And I'm really looking forward to listening to her. And of course, we have lovely Roddy Doyle, who will be reading um, from his new book, The Guts. And that's on Saturday afternoon, actually, at half four. You know, he reads beautifully. So that would be another kind of highlight for me. And there's history, there's finance, there's current affairs. (laughs) It's not just literary fiction. There's a lot for everybody at the Mountain Sea Festival. So you're guaranteed to get something in relation to your interest. Absolutely. I think also there's kind of workshops and lots and lots of really, really good poetry sessions as well. So I think whatever your interest, if you like Richard and Judy, and they have inspired a lot of people to start reading again. Richard and Judy will both be at the festival as well. So yes, definitely something for everyone. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for coming into Talking Books. I know there's going to be loads of children around the country who will be only delighted to take part in some of the workshops. And we'll see you at Ivan Boland. Well, that's it for Talking Books for tonight. If you've missed any of our shows, well, why don't you check out www.newstalk.ie forward slash Talking Books and download one of our recent podcasts. And just to let you know, on the 4th of September at 6.30 in Dublin's oldest bookstore, Hodges and Figgis, on Dublin's Dawson Street, Justin Quinn is launching his new novel, Mount Marion. It's a terrific read and very nostalgic, so I'd recommend uh, you drop in. Well, all that's left for me to do is to thank my team, Katie Day, on research, Ronan Burnock, who produced tonight's show, and Paddy Dunahoo on sound. We've been talking books. Why don't you get cosy on a nice, comfortable chair, get a nice hot cup of tea, grab a good book, and have a very, very good night. Talking books. Thanks to Hodges Figgis, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108.
Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.